So last week, if you weren't here, we started a series on happiness. I'll give you my point that happiness is both good and godly. That God wants you and me to be happy. Now, if you doubt that, please listen to last week. And after listening to last week, if you still believe that Christians should be miserable, baptized in lemon juice, depressed, frustrated, graceless jerks, we can talk if I have to. But I think if you carefully look at scripture, there's no doubt in my mind. God is a good father who wants his kids to thrive and to live an abundant kind of life, All right? So this week, we're gonna look at the pitfalls because of the broken world that we live in. We're gonna look at the pitfalls that begin to rip you and me off from the kind of life that God has for us. And I made a list one time and the list just went on and on and on, right? Fear will rob you. What is the most repeated command in the Bible? Don't be afraid. Why? Because God knows if you're full of fear, you are not going to be full of happiness. You can just keep going. Worry. How often does Jesus say, don't be worried? Pride, selfishness, negativity, pessimism, stinginess, jealousy, envy. You can go on and on and on and on. The list just got huge. So instead of trying to look at those things, which are often a symptom, I want to look at the pitfalls that are actually ways of thinking, mindsets that often bring, produce in our lives fear and worry and pride and pest, all these other things. So we're going to look at five pitfalls that as I've talked with people and chatted with them, I see these things come up over and over again, and they'll rob you, okay? So we're going to do five. Number one pitfall, Goldilocks. Makes sense, right? You guys know the story of Goldilocks? She's wandering around in the woods. She stumbles into this house, sleeps in their beds, eats all their food, and is she grateful? Not really, Right? And here's what Goldilocks wants, demands. She demands that everything be just right. That bed's too hard. That bed's too soft. Oh, that bed's just right. This food is too hot. This food is too cold. This food is just right. That's the Goldilocks syndrome. That we have this mentality that we want to try to force the world into being just right. Perfect. And I'm telling you, this breeds misery. And if you really are careful about watching advertisements, what are advertisements trying to do? They play on Goldilocks, don't they? Like, have you seen these kind of commercials where they say this? If you are not completely satisfied with fill in the blank, call this number. If you're not completely satisfied with your job, call this number. If you're not completely satisfied with your insurance, 
call this number. If you're not completely satisfied with your toothpaste, call this number. Like they would have 340 million phone calls that people were on us. No one is ever completely satisfied. And this Goldilocks thing in us, man, it kills your happiness. So I'll give you one kind of example of this, like dating. If you're looking for someone who is just right, good luck with that. Okay, so when I did premarital counseling, this was step one for me. The couple, I'd meet with them, and I just asked this question. Why are you guys getting married? Out of the thousands of other people, gals or guys that are available, why is she the one? Why is he the one? And then I'd listen. Typical answer from the, guy, from the gal was this. He is the first guy that really understands me. I just start laughing. <laughs> Listen, men do not understand women, period. It's like guys saying, I understand quantum physics. No, you don't. You can talk about it, but you don't understand it. I said, here's what this guy did for you. When you talked, he listened. That's it. And went, oh, wow. Mm, okay, fascinating. All right. Can I turn the football game on now? Right? That's all. Guys, that is a great skill. Just keep it up. You can just go, oh, mm, okay, that's awesome. Can I turn the football game on now? I mean, that's it. It's not that difficult. So that was the gal. And then the guy would be like, so why, why is she the one? And this was like the, the normal answer. Because she's perfect. I'm like, oh, great. Okay. So I would just say, all right, when are you getting married? We are going to right now schedule out an appointment six months after you get married. And then we'll talk. The best conversation was this guy. He met me actually at church after just a couple of months. He's like, bro, I need help. I'm like, what's going on, man? He goes, I have no idea. She has changed. <laughs> like, like, what do you mean? I mean, he goes, man, the moment that ring went on, she became her mother. I went, well, okay, we can talk now. Now we can have a real relationship because it's not, she's perfect. It's, yeah, she's got strengths and she's got weaknesses and he's got strengths and he's got weaknesses and let's work this thing out now right? The whole Goldilocks thing, look out. It will not work, okay? So just any level, ask yourself, is, have you arrived at perfection? Is your job the perfect job? Every person that you work with, you love them and have nothing bad to say about them. Your boss is like Jesus. <laughs> Every task that you're given you're like, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Wow. No way. Is your house perfect? Even if it's perfect, someone will move in next to you. That's not. Okay, that's coming for you. Just go, is, is the church perfect? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it is. No, it's not, right? I'm on the inside, I know. We have to stay humble and hungry. We realize I know more about the deficiencies of Edgewater than anyone, right? But it's okay. It's a group of people that are gathering and pursuing the same perfect king, right? There's no such thing. Like Goldilocks, it will kill you. It's so bad that there's an entire book of the Bible that is centers in on this one thing, searching for perfection. You know what the name of that book is? 
It's called Ecclesiastes. And it's a guy who had the ability that's not even available to you and me today. He had the ability to pursue Goldilocks you and I, in, a, in a way you and I cannot even imagine. His name is Solomon. And if you read, if you have a chance, read chapter two of Ecclesiastes. Brilliant. He tells you what he did to try to get, try to shape the world the way that he wanted it to be shaped. So he built his house. His house took him seven years to build. Matt, I've been working on my house for seven years too. <laughs> a little different for him, not fixing up a double wide. As great as yours is. His was 10,000 people working on his house for seven years. It's unbelievable, right? Then he partied like no one's business. I know your New Year's Eve shindig was awesome, but it's not comparable to Solomon. We are told the amount of food and wine that was brought into his castle every day and it's enough to feed 15,000 people. So his shindig's big. 15, half a grant's pass is at his house. Like that's the size. How about ladies? He had a couple of them. About a thousand ladies. Now I just think about that and it boggles my mind. Like how would you remember all their names, right? Just you're like, hey, sorry, remind me again. <laughs> crazy. But here's what's really crazy. You keep reading Ecclesiastes and you come to chapter seven. He says this, of a thousand women, I still haven't found the one. He's still looking for Goldilocks. There's, she's gotta be out there, the one, the perfect one out of a thousand women, still not the one. Look out for this. This will rob you. And chapter two of Ecclesiastes has been replayed thousands of times with every person that gets to these levels that you and I can only dream of and they get there and they're like, ah, oh, that wasn't it. I'll give you one example. You ever heard of a guy named John Lennon? Right? Beatles. Someone could easily argue probably the most popular band of all times. Look at this. So this is when they're at their height and John Lennon started this conversation with a pastor. And this is what he writes. Money can't buy me love. Right? Quoting one of his songs. It's true. The point is this. I want so I said last week, that's the deepest drive in a human. I want happiness. I don't want to keep on with the drugs. Explain to me what Christianity can do for me. Is it phony? Can he love me? I want out of this. All right, dude's at the top of the game, man. What is it for him? It's what, it's what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter two. At the end of all that, shaping the world after his own image, he says, I hate my life. I just wanna die. Be careful of this. Be careful of the Goldilocks. And when I look at stuff like that, I, I always step back and say, I'm a Bible guy. Why do we have this Goldilocks in us? It's in each one of us. Why do we have that? What other creature has that or it's got to be just right D does the lion have that can the lion be picky that food's too hot that food's too cold that antelope is old and tough i'm not eating that thing yuck no right it would die yet why is it in every single one of us we have this same thing here's i think why 
I had this quote by Blaise Pascal. He's a brilliant thinker. And he put it like this. Who is unhappy at not being a king except a disposed king? You and I, we're all disposed kings and queens. That in each one of us, we have this, this memory. And it stretches all the way back to the first man and first woman when they lived in a garden called Eden and things were just right. They were perfect for each other. It was paradise. It was beautiful. It was brilliant. And that's still in us. We're, disposed, we're deposed kings. And so there is this longing to get back to it. I want that again. But the reality is, we're not going there anymore. So C.S. Lewis actually has this great essay on this, and he uses this analogy to try to explain it. He says, imagine a building, and the building stands for the world. Imagine a building where two groups of people move into this building. Half of them believe the building is a five-star hotel. It's going to be just right. The other half believe it's a jail. Who's going to be happier in that building? Right? The people that think it's a five-star hotel are going to be like, man, my bed was hard. It wasn't just right. Man, the food was cold. It wasn't just right. Man, the housekeeper missed something. It wasn't just right. My view wasn't very good, right? Because they expect it to be something it cannot. But the others that know it's actually a jail, they're like a bed. Wow! I get a bed. This is so awesome. There's food here. We get to eat food. Can you believe that? I have a window with a view. Do you see that? When you actually understand that we're deposed kings and queens and that Romans chapter eight would actually argue that we're in prison right now, man, you have gratitude. You have gratitude. You're not Goldilocks grumbling, trying to make it just right. You Instead, I'm like, wow, things are pretty good for a jail. And for the believer, they're just going to get better. So beware of pitfall number one, where you begin to do this Goldilocks thing. Pitfall number two, it's really two sides of the same coin. And I call this one the missing tile syndrome. And here's the idea behind that. Let's imagine you went into a bathroom and the bathroom is fully tiled, it's beautiful, and there's a thousand tiles in there, and they are placed perfectly, and they're matching, and it's awesome, except for one tile is missing. What will you see when you walk into that bathroom? Right? You will automatically notice the missing tile. That's what the, the human brain now is trained. They have done research on this, that we will notice the missing tile and not everything that's right. Okay, and I'll prove this. Look at this picture right here. What do you see right away? <laughs> do you see the beautiful lake? Do you see the clouds? Do you see the trees? No, what do you see? The box. Because that's the way the brain today has been trained. So here's what happens with the missing tile syndrome. What happens is we begin to, as we walk through life, we begin to notice even in ourselves what's missing, what's wrong. Okay, so I'll try to explain this. If you happen to be a little overweight and you walk into a room of people, what do you see all around you? Flat stomachs. That's the way it goes. If you have 
bad acne or you have a cold sore on your lip and you walk into a group of people, what do you see? Flawless skin. If you're bald and you go into a room, what do you see? Look at all that hair. Oh, I just want a little bit of it, right? That's actually the way the human brain is trained to work. All right, so in the book of Philippians, talk about a fantastic book when it comes to happiness. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes it from guess where? Prison. He is in prison. You ever been in prison? It's not a fun place to be, I'm told. Right? Talk about missing out. You can see a lot of stuff you're missing out on. My family, job, career, opportunity, life, you're missing out on it. So he's in prison, okay? But listen to what he writes. This is Philippians chapter one, verses 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul had this deep desire to go to Rome. He writes about it. He wanted to go to Rome and have a crusade, rent out the Colosseum, Man, advertise all over, get a huge group of people, bring in Lecrae, bring in some bands, Kanye, whatever, and blow it up. He gets to Rome, but not as a crusader, as a prisoner. Bummer. But then, here's what he notice. He notices that he's strapped to his imperial guard, and they would change that guard every four hours. So every four hours, he's got this fresh dude from the Imperial Guard chained to him. And guess what he did? He says the whole, I've told the gospel to the entire Imperial Guard. You add it up, 4,000 different times he would share the gospel with somebody. Who's the real prisoner there? Aha, put it on, bro. Let's talk, (laughs) right? How brilliant is that thinking? That's the opposite of the missing tile. It's awesome. And he does it again. Just keep going. Verse 15. And this was happening to Paul. People were actually out preaching about Jesus because they were trying to make his case worse. So he writes about that. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Do you see that? Could have been all mad and be like, oh no, what are they? He's like, no, man. The name of Jesus is being proclaimed and I'm gonna rejoice in that. Two times in this little section, Paul does the exact opposite. Is that the natural way we think? No. We see the black box. We don't see the trees and the lake. It was a discipline that Paul decided, I am going to think this way. I'm gonna approve things that are excellent. I'm gonna choose to see what's good. I'm going to choose to see those things. 
And this happens all the time. So I've been talking to dads, quite a few dads recently, who've gone through a divorce and that now they're trying to figure out what do I do now? The kids, how do I see the kids? All this kind of stuff. And one dad was like, man, my life is super good right now. I'm through that. It's awesome. I got a great job. I'm moving forward. Everything in my life is good, except I've got to share my son. I don't get to see him very often. It's half the time. I said, bro, stop looking at life that way. Instead, say, man, celebrate all the stuff that's good in your life right now. Celebrate that you get to see your son half the time. You're doing missing tile syndrome. Stop it, right? He's like, oh my goodness, totally. It's in us, but we can train ourselves to do the opposite. So maybe this is a good illustration. I went and hiked the Pacific Crest Trail a number of times with some guys. On the last time, I take my son, Elijah, we had hiked for three days, so it was on the middle of the third day, and I stunk. You just stink. And three days hiking, wearing the same clothes, you smell bad, so we just smell. So we had come up this little part of the trail, and it opened up into one of those just unbelievable views. The sisters, they've got snow on them. And so I had just stopped and I'm looking at this. And Elijah, my son, he was, I think, nine at the time, came walking up beside me and he just said, wow. It was like one of those moments, you know, I just hug him, even though I stunk and he stunk, it's hugged there. And then because of our stench, the mosquitoes got us. And it was like, attack of the mosquitoes. I looked at my arm that was around my son and I don't know, there was probably 700,000 mosquitoes on my arm. I'm like, ah, right? So we just start running and I'm running and I hear Elijah behind me. He goes, I hate mosquitoes. And I looked back at him and I said, yeah, but I love the view. And as we're walking, I said, bro, that's life. Life is enjoy the view and swat the mosquitoes because there's always gonna be a mosquito, Right? There's always going to be something that you can be like, ah, I hate that. Or you can enjoy the view. Paul here has this discipline. He shows us twice the same thing. I am choosing to enjoy the view and swat the mosquito. Choosing to do that. So Jeremiah was told by God in Jeremiah 15, 19. He was told by, by God this just great little thing. It's the opposite of missing tile syndrome. He says, if you take the precious from the vial, if you see the one good tile and you ignore the 999 bad tiles, if you take the precious from the vial, that shall be my mouth. I need people, God's saying, that understand how good things are and are able to see that and talk about that like Paul does in Philippians chapter 1. So beware of this missing tile. Reverse it in your own mind. I'm gonna choose not to see what I don't have. I'm gonna choose to see what I do have and see what God is doing in the midst of hard things. Number three pitfall. Don't have a cow. Here's what I mean. How do cows eat? They ruminate, right? They're a ruminant animal, which means this. They go, they eat a bunch of grass, they lay down, they puke that grass up, they rechew it, they swallow it, 
And they do that over and over. It's called chewing the cud. It's a ruminant animal. And they do it about eight hours a day. Don't have a cow. Don't sit there and ruminate about everything in your life. Don't go over it, all the junk, all the bitterness, all the mistakes, all the garbage. Don't ruminate. Or you will be moody. This will happen to you. I couldn't help myself, man. It's just so cheesy. I'm like, I wanted to resist, but I couldn't. You can email me and tell me not to and pray for me because I'll do it again. It's true. Rumination brings desperation. That's what it does. When you sit there and just allow your brain to replay that same tape over and over and over and over again. Here's what science has found. When you do that, you become powerless. It like paralyzes you. You're unwilling to try new things. You're unwilling to be like positive. It just, it sinks you like nothing else. Don't have a cow. People do it all the time. I'm not good enough, man. Can't do this. I'm just going to quit my job. Oh, I really blew it with that client. I'm never getting another client. Oh, I'm terrible at math. I'm never going to graduate. I'll never get into that college. Right? Everyone does it. And you have to learn to stop doing it. Look what Paul does. This is, I don't know, top 10 texts in the Bible for me. It's Philippians 3, verse 12. And he gives the key to helping you and me not ruminate. Not that I had already obtained this or am already perfect. Author of scripture, the apostle Paul saying, yeah, I haven't arrived, I'm not perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own gospel. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. I'm not mom. Paul had a ton to ruminate about. He had killed Christians. He had separated families. He had destroyed churches. He hated Jesus. He had a ton of stuff that he could have ruminated but he said, I'm not doing that. I'm gonna forget the stuff that lies behind and I'm gonna reach forward to the high call that God has on my life. Because Paul knew this. You can either hold on and be in pain or you can let go and be happy, but you can't be both. It's one or the other. So Paul says, this one thing I'm doing, all that regret, all those mistakes, all that bitterness, all that unforgiveness, I'm letting that stuff go. I'm not gonna be thinking about it anymore. I'm letting it go and I'm looking forward to the high call that God has on my life, the prize that's in front of me. 
That is a brilliant text. Well, Matt, how do you do that? Because I am a ruminator and I don't know how to stop. My mind has a mind of its own. My anxieties have anxieties. What do I do? How in the world do I change? Well, that's this series, and I'm gonna give you one. If you can ruminate, which is the negative, you can meditate, which is the positive. You can meditate. And the book of Psalms, I am convinced more and more, the book of Psalms is a manual about how to retrain your brain and get them out of bad cycles. So there are a ton of Psalms and these Psalms start out super ruminating, negative. How God, why God, what's up God, right? It's a whole crew of them. They're called Psalms of Lament. And all but one of them, the process is this. That person goes through that rumination, begins to see a new perspective from God and they end with this super high, ah, Right, that's what God's doing. Man, they're brilliant. Grab a psalm. I can't tell you how many times I've been stuck in cycles that are unhealthy and when I'll grab God's word and begin to study and think the exact word I needed, the phrase, the story, it comes to me. I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You're saving me from me. If you can ruminate, meditate. Allow God's word to wash you and cleanse you and cure you of that, or it'll kill you, okay? Fourthly, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not break. You don't be miserable, be inflexible. So I'm gonna give you this study and try to explain how it actually applies to us as humans. Uh, These scientists did this study with monkeys and mostly men. I don't know why they chose men, but they did. Uh, And... The study was simple. There was this box and the people were told, if you press this button, money will come out. Well, the box was programmed no matter what you did after you press the button, like after 60 seconds to give you money or five minutes to give you money or whatever it was randomly, right? But you only had to press the button one time. Here's what they found. The majority of men did. The majority of people did is they would press the button and the longer they stood there, the faster they would press that button. Like, this has got to work. The more I press this, the more money I'm getting. Yes, something I'm seeing. And they would just over and over and over and over and over again, even though it was programmed every minute to give them money. Didn't matter. They couldn't see it. Inflexible, just pushing the button. The monkeys came in and the monkeys within a couple of times figured out if I just press the button once, the treat comes out. Right? It's crazy, isn't it? What does that tell us about us? We get stuck in super bad patterns. And it's very hard to break out of those patterns. So I'll give you one. Husbands and wives. So the wife will come home from work and she'll have an issue at work. And so she will want to share that issue with her husband, right? So she'll start saying, hey, honey, today at work, this thing happened to me. This was going on. This was happening. And then what does the husband want to do? Solve the problem, right? We're problem solvers. So we're like, well, here's what you need to do. And the wife can be like, no, duh. You didn't think I thought of that? I totally know that. Really, you're doing that to me? So what the wife really wanted was, sweetie, man, that's too bad. I'm sorry that happened to you. 
Is there anything I can do to help you? But instead, what does the husband do? Solution. And the husband keeps doing solution. As the years go by, he keeps just pushing the button over and over and over and over and over again, right? And there's no happily ever after. And that's what we do. So you can look at that in just about every aspect of your life. There are these things that have never worked, but we keep pushing the same button and it drives us crazy. And it's so healthy to, in community, begin to talk to people and share with people and try to hear from people like, how do you do this better? How do you do this better, right? So be flexible. Being flexible is a key. Are you guys looking for a seat? Are you just happy right there? Yeah, you can stand right there. It's a beautiful spot. It's okay, she can stand. There's a ton more. If you start to think about this and study, there's a ton more. Negativity, I call this one when I, then I syndrome. We have this idea that when something happens that will finally make us happy. But it's a mirage that you just chase and it moves. Pride. Pride is a killer. Do you know that? Here's the problem with pride. I am always on my mind. Do you know that? It's true. If I could take a big picture of all of us right now and put it up on this screen, who would you look for first? Right? Because we're always on our mind. This morning when you were getting ready to come to church, did this cross your mind? Did you say, man, I sure hope Matt looks good today. Right? Anybody? I sure he, hope he wears that gray shirt because he looks awesome in it. <laughs> no, right? That'd be weird and wrong. <laughs> Pride will just kill you. It will. But here's the last one. And it's one that I think is really deep in us. And, and I put it like this. When you're climbing a ladder, don't look around. So there's this organization called the World Health Organization. And they, in the study that I was reading, they said America leads the world in deaths by falling off of a ladder. Talk about making America great again. <laughs> and another study, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons said that in America, 500,000 people fall off a ladder per year. Now I read that and I thought, those are the ones that are reported. Like, how many people in here have fallen off a ladder and never told anybody? Like, every honest man's hand is up. Yeah, totally. Okay. We're all climbing ladders. We're climbing ladders as a parent. We're climbing ladders in our career. We're climbing ladders in school. We're climbing ladders as a, uh, grandparents, in retirement, in your IRA, in your bank accounts. We're all, we all have these ladders we're climbing. And as we're climbing up our ladder, what do we do? We start looking at everybody else. Where are they at on their ladder? Where are they at as parents? Where are they at in their retirement? Where are they at in their bank account? Where are they at in whatever it is, right? We start looking around at all these other places. How are they doing? And that is dangerous. Comparison is deadly. It rarely does anything good for you. And most often, it causes you to miss a step and fall flat on your back. 
Look how much money they have. Look how thin she is. Look how good her kids are. Look how happy her husband is. Look how big Matt's guns are. (laughs) Deadly. (laughs) Right? We do this. We're constantly, constantly doing that. And if we're not looking up, then what we do is we look down. And we say, oh, that moron got laid off. I'm so glad I'm not like that moron. And that's just as deadly. When you're climbing your ladder... Don't look around because you cannot be envious, which is the product of comparison. You cannot be envious and happy. They go, you can't. They are mutually exclusive. So listen to what the Bible says about comparison. Romans 14.3, which is just a fantastic chapter on comparison, on people dealing with people. Listen to what Paul says. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Listen, as believers, we are climbing the ladder that Jesus has us on. It's his opinion that matters. That's what matters. Okay, then here's another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. This is Paul recounting Like in a difficult situation, he says this. It matters very little to me what you think of me. I love that. Even less where I rank in popular opinion. I don't even rank myself. Comparisons in these matters are pointless. How good is that? When you're climbing a ladder, don't look around. You're going to flat back it. It's miserable. And here's, here's the thing about how we're designed and why we do this. I think it actually goes all the way back to the beginning. How were you and I created? What was the first human created? God got his hands dirty, right? Put his hands in the dirt, formed the man out of dirt. And then what did he do? Breathed divine breath, the ruach, into the dirt. And the dirt became a living nefesh or soul, became Adam. Right? You know what that is? It's a divine dirt bag. <laughs> That's what humans are. We're this mix of heaven and earth, of divine and dirt. We're a mix. And the problem is this we come to church and then we start seeing everybody on our ladders and comparing them, and we say, oh, they're divine. And I'm a dirt bag. Because when you come to church, you, you come Instagrammable, right? Like, oh. And so guys, we see other guys, we're like, man, that guy is so awesome. He's so holy. He reads the book of Leviticus. I can't find the book of Leviticus. I think my Bible's missing it. I'm such a dirt bag. No, you're both dirt bags. Right? We're all dirt bags. Yes, there's divine, there's good. Paul, that, that text I just read, right? I'm not perfect. He's the apostle Paul. He's like, ah, I'm still a dirt bag too. But I'm not giving up. I'm still climbing my ladder that Jesus has for me. I'm not gonna do the comparison thing, but I'm gonna go where I need to go, right? Our moms, you come in here, 
And you see that mom with her kids, they're like little ducklings behind her just walking along. I love church. I love my mommy, right? And you're like, I can't even find my kids. Like, where are they? Get over here, right? And you're like, oh, I'm such a dirtbag of a mom. No, you're both dirtbags. <laughs> yes, do you see that? Do you understand that? And I'm telling you, that's throughout scripture. And entire doctrines are made because we go one way too far, right? We are perfected in a sense. We're also being perfected at the same time. You got to keep those things in tension because that's what makes it right. It's what Paul says there. You know, I haven't got where I'm supposed to be, but I keep going. Right, because the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's where I call it glorious ruins, Right? There's a glory to us, but there's also a ruin to us. We're, we're immune infants, right? We have this immunity because of what Jesus has done for us, but we're also infants that need to grow up into everything. That's used over and over in Scripture. Men desire the sincere milk of Scripture like a baby does because you need to grow up as well, right? We're, we're favored failures. We're privileged projects. That's what we are. And when you get that tension, right? You stop looking around like, I don't care how they're doing. I'm climbing the ladder that Jesus has for me today. I'm pressing on to the high mark that he has for me today. And I'm not going to compare myself to other people. Man, when you can do that, you stop the looking around and you just enjoy the journey that Jesus has you on and your heart is full of happiness. You got to do that. So I'll end with one final quote and then we'll go to the table. This is one of my favorite quotes. Grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. We go to a table that tell us, tells us the scorecard was nailed to a cross, completely erased, burned and gone. And that God looks at you and me and says, you are my son, you are my daughter in whom I'm well pleased because of the work of Jesus on your behalf on the cross. And that work is never gonna change. Your status with God is secure because it's based on Jesus and not how high I climb on a ladder. Oh, it's so brilliant transforms your life. So today as we come to the table, Jesus, may we know with certainty that because we have put our faith in you as Lord, as King, as Savior, as Messiah, and because we've confessed with our mouths that you came back from the grave, we are completely and totally accepted into your family, adopted as sons and daughters, destined to be kings and queens. May the scorecard that we keep in our own mind, the ladder that we keep comparing to other people, may it be demolished by your grace this morning. And may we walk from here 
set free to enjoy the journey, to enjoy what you have for us, to not be worried about comparisons, not worried about what other people are doing, but simply doing everything we do heartily as unto you as our master and king. So we pray as we come to the table, we might know we're invited in. We're allowed in because of your grace. I pray this in your name. Amen.